Okay. I think, I think we'll make a start. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. It's great to, to see everyone, and especially the few faces I don't recognize. Wonderful to have you with us this morning. So for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Steve, Steve Jones. I have the privilege of leading Oxford Community Church and actually have the privilege this morning of, um, in a funny way, wrapping up our series on Luke, even though there's a few weeks left to go, which might seem an odd thing. But we've been going through the book of Luke since last September, We've gone through roughly in order, except that we started in chapter 3 so that we could come back to the story of the birth of Jesus at Christmas. And at Easter, we jumped forward to the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And we have now finished the rest of the run through in order. What we are going to be doing over the summer is looking at a few parables in the Gospel of Luke over the summer. So next weekend, I hope to see many of you in a field uh, near Malvern. It's going to be a great time together, and uh, you can come along without any guilty conscience. You just have to pay a bit of money. That's, again, the details are all on the website uh, for the event. But then through August, we're going to be taking a different parable each week. We're going to have, as many of you will know, a more dialed back program over the summer. Uh, the children's work will be uh, stay and play rather than all that we normally do. The Sunday service here in here will be a little bit shorter. There'll be probably fewer of us as people go in search of the sun and relaxation in different parts of the UK and beyond. This is our last Sunday running through Luke and the last Sunday before summer kind of um, emptiness. I don't know what the right word is, but when most of us are together. So it's an opportunity this morning to offer some reflections on what this year has been for us as a church and what this uh, long run through Luke has brought us. Um, we began on the 9th of September... 2014. Does anyone remember who kicked off the series? He's not here this morning. He visited the JR this week for a lesson. Jeremy Blakey, yeah, who, by the way, fell, fell off a table and lacerated the back of his head this week and had to go to the JR and have it stapled back together. So do pray for him. One small blessing along the way was that the classroom in which he fell off a table uh, contained the daughter of a consultant working in A&E that day. So she texted ahead to her father, who then gave Jeremy the red carpet treatment through A&E, which is a silver lining in what was otherwise a cloud. Um, but anyway, Jeremy kicked us off last September, and he highlighted that this would be something of a marathon. We're getting towards the end of that marathon, but what he said was that whereas going through the whole of Luke's gospel would be not a sprint, but a marathon, what would differ about this marathon is that rather than ending exhausted and collapsing, we'd finish with more energy and more faith. So I hope that's how you feel. I hope that as we've gone through the gospel, you know that it's done you good. It's certainly done me a world of good. Jeremy also described seven themes that come out through the book. I'm not going to ask you what those all are. Dan's already mentioned this morning that a really strong theme, it's there in all the Gospels, is the focus on Jesus' death and resurrection. All four Gospels give huge amounts of space to explaining that, just as the rest of the New Testament 
teaching us about Jesus puts this great emphasis on the cross and the resurrection as central to it all. We've remembered that through breaking bread and sharing the cup together this morning. There are other themes. I'm not going to go over all seven this morning, but I'm going to highlight just three of them and use that to reflect on the year that's gone and pray into life yet to come. So here's the first. I'm going to explain this picture in just a minute. You can try and guess what it is. Um, I don't know whether you'll manage, but I'll explain the picture in just a minute. But one of the themes that we find in Luke's gospel is that more than any other of the four gospels, Luke gives us a sense of history. It's there, right at the beginning of the gospel, where he says many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down uh, to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And then going on through at the beginning of chapter 2, that was the beginning of chapter 1, at the beginning of chapter 2, Luke locates for us Jesus' birth within history by saying, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria, beginning of chapter 3. He locates events within time. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, etc., etc., at that time, he starts to talk about the life of John the Baptist. Luke is careful to locate this story within history. That's one way in which, Jesus, uh, in which Luke focuses on Jesus' story, his story, placing it in history. The next thing, though, is, about, is the picture that's on this PowerPoint that, again, in common with the other Gospels, Luke talks a lot about prophecy in different ways. First of all, there are the prophecies that have been spoken before and are now fulfilled in Jesus' life. You might think of Luke chapter 4, where Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth, reads from the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news. And then in verse 21 says, uh, this today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And Luke's very clear in saying these things have been prophesied in the past and they're happening now. Of course, we also have in Luke's gospel prophecies about the future that is yet to come. There are prophecies about future historic events. Jesus speaks of his own death and resurrection and of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus also speaks of the coming fall of Jerusalem. When because of the Jews' ongoing rebellion against Rome, finally the Romans destroyed the city about 40 years after Jesus prophesied it would happen. Jesus also prophesied beyond that his second coming, that after having returned to heaven, he would come back. And so Luke doesn't just tell a couple of events like newspaper clippings 
isolated from any larger story, but places the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection in this bigger story. And that's what this picture's about. This is an infographic of all the places in the Bible where one part of the Bible points to and connects or quotes with another, quotes from another. Starting at Genesis on the left and coming into, you can see it gets more intense within the New Testament there on the right. And Luke's gospel is where I've stuck that green band. So the whole of the story of the Bible is interconnected because God knew at the outset what he would do at the end. And at the end, he's acting in a way consistent with what he did at the beginning. And all the way in between, he has been the same God working out his purposes. And Luke places the story of Jesus in that great sweep, that great arc of what God is doing in history. So Luke places Jesus' story in, if you like, secular history, the the kings and the princes, the tetrarchs and the governors, happening in real time. He places Luke's story as well in God's purposes worked out over time. There's another thing that we find as well. Just here and there, we see the Holy Spirit speaking in Luke's gospel to give people more personal guidance concerning the timing of things, concerning what quite is going on. You see, Zechariah, right at the beginning of the gospel, John the Baptist's father, unable to speak. And the word comes saying, you will not be able to speak until the child is born. Uh, Or Simeon in chapter 2, this man of God waiting in the temple, God has revealed to Simeon by his spirit, by the spirit of prophecy, that he will see the Messiah in his lifetime and he's waiting. And then Jesus comes. And so it's like that for us too. Just as Luke presents Jesus' story and the story of the first disciples within history, within God's plans, and with the Holy Spirit helping them to understand, God does the same for us too today in 2015. Uh, We too live in real history. (laughs) That's probably not in doubt, unless any of you are philosophers who've gone down that kind of, you know, idealistic, crazy, is the world really real stuff. And since we're in a university city, there might be one or two, but most of us, I'm sure, are convinced that we're living in real history in a specific time and place. Like the first disciples, we, we experience events in our lives. We experience events over time. And the question is, what do those events mean? What's the significance of the things that are happening in our lives? What meaning should we find in them? Events, the events of our lives, only make sense when they fall within a story. And so we get to see this grand sweep of God's purposes worked out, and that enables us to see our place within all that God is doing. We know that Jesus is building his church. We know that his kingdom is being extended. The New Testament makes it clear to us that there will also be what it calls tribulations. There will be challenges in this life. And if anything, those tribulations will get greater 
as the light of God comes into the world and his kingdom approaches completeness and as Jesus returns. The big picture, it's painted for us. And we live our lives within that big picture. And so we can see. We can see the future. We know that the story's not over until Jesus wins. If you're living in a chapter of the story where you're facing defeat, I can tell you with every confidence it's not the last chapter. Because in the last chapter, there's a lamb looking like he's slain. That'll be our Jesus. In the last chapter, there's a lamb looking slain, seated on the throne of heaven. And all of creation is adoring him. And every knee is bowing and every tongue is worshipping in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's the last chapter. So whatever chapter you're in now... It's not the last one yet until we see that cosmic victory of Christ. It's where it's, we know the end, it's amazing. We know the end of the story and the end of the story is that the lamb wins. So we live within that great sweep and we see the future. There are times in our lives when, despite that, it doesn't feel like we're seeing a fat lot with clarity. It feels that we're surrounded by fog. And God in his graciousness sends us his spirit so that when we can't see, when our rational faculties fail us, he whispers to us by his spirit. He speaks to us in the fog. And when we can't see our way, he speaks to us and he guides us through his voice, through his word. That's what Simeon experienced, looking at the sweep of history and knowing that God's kingdom would work out because the prophets had said so, but under Roman occupation and this whisper, we know not how or when, but we know it came from the spirit of God to Simeon saying, you will see the Christ in your lifetime, whisper of God, voice in the fog. It's what God does to guide us, to help us understand and to make sense of life. I wonder, as you think back, as we're at the end of a school year, towards the end of this series and looking back, I wonder what stands out to you from the last year. There will have been highlights and there will have been low points. The question is, can we see the bigger picture that God is working out? Can we see the bigger picture that God is working out. Over the last 10 years, which for me is now, it's the time that I've had the privilege of leading Oxford Community Church. I know that for us as a community, we have constantly been helped in both the ways shown to us by Luke's gospel. We have seen and we continue to see the big picture of scripture and we have heard the voice of God guiding us, whispering to us, making things clear to us. Take a couple of examples. Tyndale Community School, which, by the way, if you haven't heard, Ofsted recently judged to be good. Um, Outstanding in one area, which is safeguarding. It's an outstandingly safe school in which to be, which is no bad thing. And um, so we thank God for that. This is a school, for those of you who don't know, that we have participated in setting up a new primary school in the city of Oxford, just getting to the end of its second academic year. We have seen 
from the scriptures and from the grand sweep of what God has done and is doing and will do, we have seen that God places value on children. We have seen that God works through the generations as one generation passes on to the next God's way of doing things, passes on to the next God's word that brings revelation. We've seen that and we've heard him speak about a new pattern of Christian education that would play a transforming part in the city in which we live. A school that would be a lighthouse. I remember walking on Cleve Hill. I don't know how many of you know where Cleve Hill is. It's the place that Bev and I went on our first date. That's how important a place it is. And as I, some years after that, walking along, it's just near Cheltenham where we both grew up, walking along the top of the hill and saying, God, I think that there's, I'm in a fog. I wasn't literally in a fog. There is a lot of fog up there. It wasn't, you know, in my thinking, in a fog, in my feeling, was in a fog and saying, so God, there's this King's School, which is wonderful. It's where all three of our daughters are being educated and it's wonderful. And yet you're saying something else to us as a church about something else in the city of Oxford. And it's not in focus. There's a fog. And this word came to me, lighthouse. And suddenly, as it was a whisper of the Spirit, I could see what God wanted. A school where his light would shine in and from which his light would shine out. A place of revelation, something that connects with the longest lasting motto in the life of our city, which is the university's motto, the Lord is my light. The beginnings of education in this city, what happened is people gathered around seeking the light of God. And this simple word, a whisper in the fog, a lighthouse, and for me, I've been clear as crystal since then as to what God has spoken to us to do. To join in with this long tradition of education, knowing that the Lord is our light. Missional communities. Uh, We have seen that God... In the Old Testament, many of the Jews lived in walled cities for their protection. Part of Jerusalem's glory was that it was a wall, it had really good walls. And they were very pleased about that because it brought safety. And then Zechariah, the prophet, has a vision right towards the end of the Old Testament. And the vision goes like this. Jerusalem will be a city without walls. Shock, horror, danger, fragility and vulnerability. And then the rest of the word comes The Lord says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it and people will be gathered in. See, the Old Testament community of God was a bounded community. But in the New Testament, we see something different. Instead of keeping people out to keep the community safe, Jesus is constantly going to the people outside and beyond, those who are excluded and drawing them in the New Testament community is not, and we've seen that, we know that, we've read the scriptures and we know that the church is meant to be a city without walls, a community into which people can come. And we started this journey about seven years ago now of exploring what would that look like for us as a church to not be 
a walled kind of people, but an open people. I don't know about you, but until that time, my experience of church life was that people might occasionally come to a particularly glitzy event that we held, or one where there was a celebrity. Remember us having Jonathan Aitken and Rosemary Conley and Sean Murphy and all sorts of people, and people kind of came and kind of interested. But I couldn't remember a single occasion when the thing that we thought, if anything, was really the, the heart of church life, our small groups, never ever had any one come to those except people who were already committed Christians. It felt like we occasionally put the drawbridge down and put on a party and people come in for the party. But, but the substance of our, uh, of our community life was closed. It was a closed thing, a walled city. And we've explored what that means. And along the way, as we've seen something, there have been foggy moments. And that God has whispered by his spirit, There was one, for me, particularly key occasion when I was wondering, have I got it in me to push through on encouraging us as a community to sustain that direction, to keep making that exploration when, for many of us, there was this sort of deep desire to just give up and go back to what we knew. And some of you will have heard this story before, but I was in Sheffield and people were praying for um, the church elders were at an event there and somebody said um, Steve I've had a vision of you so people were outside of our church praying and said I see you with a feather duster in your hand and this is a picture of your leadership so far all you've done is move the dust around and I see God replacing it with a sword and I reacted as you'd expect uh, with disbelief, and that's not true. And then someone else straight away said, that's really great that you said that, because I had a similar picture. <laughs> I had a picture of you, Steve, with a duster in your hand and God replacing it with a silver sword. Silver swords were given to generals in the American, one of the American armies, maybe both of them, in their civil war, because although they didn't... Um, get to use them very often it helped i never made them feel special or something but it was about strategy having a cutting edge in strategy and i was encouraged like okay and someone prayed for me and something changed in me because the word of god had come and spoken to me in the fog and guided me and i think i've got a little bit sharper since then and i'm determined as many of you know that we push through or whatever this missional communities thing means there's no turning back there's only one direction forward and though we have much yet to learn it's now commonplace for our small groups to have people who aren't believers come in and be part of them Uh, it's become it's become normal that thing which seemed i didn't know how it would ever change how a walled city of a church would become a city without walls trusting the lord to be our defender and welcoming people in it's beginning to happen. Um, it's been a good year for finances too. We entered the year something like £50,000 in debt as a church, and now we're not. So that's good. Um, we saw in the scriptures the big sweep of that God's always provided for his people. He's always, you could 
open almost any book of the Bible and find provision of the ordinary kind, where people work and their fields produce fruit, or of the extraordinary kind, the ravens flying in with food to drop at your feet, or the manna from heaven. God provides. And we've seen that as well this year. Um, Those are reflections on us all together. These reflections about the, the importance of knowing our place in God's big story and of the whisper of his spirit to guide us in the fog, to make sense of life. These things are true at a more personal level. Five years ago, I took a study break to try to progress further through the theology degree that I was doing at the time, which I did and, and went well. And at the end of it, Steve Begu and Colin Green both had prophetic words for me um, pretty much the day I finished. Steve's word was uh, to do with me being more trustworthy as a result of God having changed me inside. Which I remember it was a great encouragement and I remember it well. And Colin Green had a picture for me of me standing in the central lobby in the Palace of Westminster, which has many doors coming off it. And he said, um, you are going to be given doors into public life. And God says, as they're presented to you, walk through them because there will be much blessing. The next morning, I went for breakfast with a bunch of um, church leaders in the city in, from St. Aldate, St. Ebb, St. Andrews, and Linton Road, um, Emmanuel uh, Church. And we had breakfast, and the question came up, would I please represent churches of our kind, of an evangelical kind, on the Oxford Council of Faiths as a body that would be part of public life and respond to queries from the city council? And I said, no. I had no appetite for it at all. And then I was cycling home, and the penny dropped. That the day before, it was early in the morning and the coffee hadn't quite got into my brain at the point that I said no. But as I was cycling home, the penny dropped and I said, oh, yes, God spoke a word yesterday. And so I had to phone um, the relevant guy back up and say, you know, I'm just dim and I'm sorry, but yes, I will join in. And I joined the Oxford Council of Faith and for several years it gave me an introduction to what the multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-faith society that we live in. And having spoken already about Tyndale Community School, it served for me as an apprenticeship, really, in being able to speak as a Christian into our modern pluralist society uh, with confidence and with an expectation of being listened to and received. And the door that opened from the Oxford Council of Faiths, I think, beyond the next door was to do with Tyndale Community School. Since this good Ofsted judgment recently, something else has begun to happen. I don't know if you know, but the Chapel Street Trust with whom we run that school put in bids to run two other schools in the county, one in the new um, Barton West development, which was turned down, and the first new school to be built in the expansion of Bister's Ecotown, which was also turned down. The reason that they were turned down was we had no track record of good Ofsted outcomes, but now we do. And within, oh, let me think, within 10 days of that, fresh conversations have begun in the county about which other schools we might like to run then. It's like another door is opening. 
If God hadn't spoken that prophetic word by his spirit, I would have said no at that breakfast. Actually, I wouldn't, not that I would have done, I did. (laughs) We rely on God leading us by his spirit. And it may feel like I've drifted away from talking about Luke's gospel, but what we see is Luke making sense of the events of Jesus' life for us. Real events in real time, just as real as our lives now, with reference to the big picture that enables us to see what God's doing, but also showing that again and again and again, God whispers to his people. Sometimes that's a shout, but speaks to us to guide us through life. I could tell many more stories of how I've been helped by the word of God coming to me. Um, I did f- feel that God gave me a couple of personal prophetic words for people this morning um, as part of this. And I know the people involved, and therefore I'm happy to say this in front of others because these are encouraging things. Um, it's actually Ben and Catherine for you. Um, I felt that... Um, I felt that uh, these guys are getting married soon. Yay! And there's all kinds of things that go on in the process. I just felt... Um, my attention drawn to a verse in Jeremiah which says, can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? And I just felt that there's going to be, um, in the whole process of of you getting married, there's going to be um, a temptation that's going to come to you to to question whether things are really going to fit together. And um, what God wants to say is, it's just a temptation and that whereas none of us can change ourselves, um, he wants to speak to you that this is not just a question of two becoming one, but he's changing identity. For both of you, he's changing your identity in this process. And any temptation you may have to question, are things going to fit? Are we going to fit together? Are we going to fit with other people? It's a temptation. It's an accusing arrow of the enemy. God's going to deal with it. And change everything in you that he needs to change. And um, they're coming for lunch, so you can come back to me on that. We can pray as well. And Dan, for you, I just felt God say, you are on the right course. I had a picture of uh, of a plane going along the runway. It just needed more power. (laughs) Just needed more power to take off. And it's very simple. When we get to praying later, I'd like people to to gather around Dan and pray for a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit on you, which I know you'll want. Um, I also felt, um, I can't see, there's a couple of people that I felt God put on my heart that God would speak to them this morning, but when I prayed, he didn't give me anything for them. Um, one was Suzanne Baird, who I can't see anywhere, and the other Nigel was you. Um, so what we're going to do is we are going to pray later. I just want to make sure that people gather around you to pray and just see what God wants to bless you by saying this morning. There's two Nigels there. Um, maybe it's both of you. That's fine. Okay. Oh, that's all the first point. His story and our place in the story. There'll be time to pray later. Can you raise a hand? If you're doing the prophetic training course and being mentored with, by Graham or Helena, can you wave a hand? Come on, I know there are people doing that. They just all absented themselves this morning. Okay. All right, well, let's try a different question since they all seem to have gone away today. Um, 
I'll think about that. We'll get there in a bit. What I want to do before we finish is just release some spirit, see some spiritual gifts active amongst us. Because whilst there is this grand purpose of God being worked out through history, I'm sure there are many people who this morning are saying, true, <laughs> but right now I feel in a bit of a fog. And God wants to speak, and he wants to speak prophetically to people this morning. That's one theme. Here's another theme, seeking the lost. In Luke chapter 19, we're given a statement about the whole purpose of Jesus coming. God made man, the word made flesh. It says, the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. God comes to bring salvation. Jesus came to bring salvation, restoration, healing, forgiveness. There was, I just saw this on Facebook this week from one of our church members, who I don't think is here this morning. I just wanted to share some good news and to thank those of you who've been praying because it worked. I had my ultrasound this morning that I've been waiting on for ages and the doctor told me my cyst had shrunk and there's basically nothing there and I'm all clear. No operations needed. Praise God. He responded to my prayers. This is, this is kind of testimony is no surprise to us. There is a constant flow of the life of God amongst us as a community who experience God's salvation restoration, healing, and forgiveness. And Luke, between the different Gospels, particularly emphasizes that this salvation of Christ is for all people. No one is left out. The angels appear to shepherds, who are a bit like the travelers of their day, and announces peace for all people. And the angels announce peace for all people. When Luke gives the list of Jesus' ancestors... He doesn't just stop amongst sort of the people of faith somewhere, uh, Jacob or Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. He says, Jesus is a son of Adam. He's one with all of us. It's an emphasis that Luke brings out. We have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Those who might be despised are indeed our neighbors to be loved. It's in Luke's gospel where it's stated simply, blessed are the poor. Not just the poor in spirit, but straight up, blessed are the poor. In fact, Jesus' own family were dirt poor. We know that from Luke chapter 2 and verse 24, where they came and made an offering in order to buy back Jesus from being totally um, given over to um, God in a of technical, ceremonial way. don't really want to go into the details of that now. They had to make an offering, and they made the poor people's offering, the lowest, cheapest, that they were allowed to make only because they were dirt poor. That's Jesus' background. And again and again, we see Jesus inviting people in, but not only for them to come to an event of some sort, but to come into people's homes. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 11, when Jesus tells a parable of the great banquet, it ends by saying that the... I've got the wrong reference in my notes. But it ends by saying, go out and find... There we go, verse 21. The servant came back and reported to his mother, the owner of the house ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in 
the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them all come in so that my house will be full. There's the story of the prodigal son, a bad boy, bad, bad boy, who has gone and squandered stuff, has been insulting to his family, bad boy. And he's invited to come back, and there's a celebratory feast. He's invited into the home. He's invited in for a meal. Zacchaeus, well, this time around, Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. There's another bad boy who's now, he's collaborating with the uh, oppressive military authorities, seeing injustice done as part of his working life. And Jesus invites himself into security. They're in the home. They're eating meals. And I hope, I hope that Luke's gospel has expanded our hearts for people. I hope that we've been inspired to welcome people, not just to church events, but into our homes and into our lives. I hope that we've got a fresh appetite for making new friends, because that's what it amounts to. Seeing that our church community is not just about events and meetings, but if it's really about community, um, then there's real connection with other people. We don't just see the same people at a series of events in the church diary, but we're doing other things that friends do together, having fun together, playing games together, sharing life, praying for one another as and when needed, not just when Thursday night comes around and there's a meeting at which we're supposed to pray. Real community. And of course, as we've read Luke's Gospels, we've been reminded again and again of drawing in those who are not already included. That's why we did... Another thing that's been part of our church life in the last year is we, cons- we had a consultation around same-sex attraction and how are we doing as a church at serving, loving, befriending people who are either ex- would be very happy to be described as experiencing same-sex attraction and wondering what, um, wrestling perhaps with that, and also people who are identifying as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or generally non-heterosexual. You may remember a couple of Sundays in the spring where I stood up and said, we want to hear how we're doing. We want to know how well we're serving people. I have to say, the outcome of that consultation was rather muted. There wasn't a clear trumpet sound of, this is the next step and what we need to do. The main outcome was this, that even whilst we as a church uphold the Bible's teaching about marriage being for one man and one woman and about sex outside of marriage being a sin, even as we uphold that, there are people in the church who experience same-sex attraction, who would describe themselves as not heterosexual. Um, What we've heard from those people is that they have felt loved, and supported as part of our church family, uh, even whilst being challenged. One of the questions that was asked me was, how would I want non-heterosexual people to experience our church? And I found myself saying this, that I want them to experience it just the same as everybody else does, 
And just like it was an encounter with Jesus. You see, sometimes we have the impression that Jesus is almost like a split personality. There are times when he seems entirely lovely and welcoming and saying to people, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. And times when he's fierce, woe to you, whitewashed tombs and serpents. And And yet it's one Jesus. And what we see is that he is both wonderfully supportive and incisively challenging. He's all of those, he's both of those things to all people. He's always welcoming and he's always challenging. And my hope for all of us is that that's how we'd experience our church life, that it would both be a place of friendship and support and welcome, that anyone who ever comes through the doors here or through the doors of your home when you're hosting the church community meeting with you, that people would be welcomed, no question. But I also hope that shot through all that we do is a culture of challenge. And that challenge extends into every aspect of life. For all of us, that challenge touches on how we speak, how we treat other people. It touches on how we use our money, and it touches on our sexuality too. Um, I found myself saying to some people that came to see me who were describing themselves, wanted to use the phrase non-het in the church and saying, um, if people who are, let's say, let's use the phrase experiencing same-sex attraction, can expect, as well as being supported, to, to experience challenge around their sexuality as part of being in this church. But you know what? Over the years, I've had to spend far more time challenging young men to keep their trousers up, just in general. Uh, Than any other kind of challenge that needs to be given to people's sexuality in the life of the church. Is this making sense? Seeing some nods and some processing going on. Um, What we want is to treat people as individuals and to treat people as Jesus would do Um, having asked, how's that going? What have people's experiences been? The overwhelming message that came back was people feel treated well and helped and pointed towards Jesus in it all, which was great. Um, Personally, I was encouraged to hear that, but it didn't provide us with any obvious next steps. What do we do next then? Is there, and so I'd like to encourage you, please, if, especially those of you that have more of a concern that we get things right in this area, knowing that as a whole, the, the non-het community or communities would assume that we're going to jump on them and judge them at the first step, and that, that would be their experience of church life. We need God to do something new. You know, Helen was praying, and, um, and Avril was reminding us that God wants to do something where we think where things are chaotic god wants to come and do something new and beautiful and we need to pray that god would do something new and beautiful in the church's interaction with um people who uh, have reason to think that we're going to treat them badly when we know that god loves and embraces and radically transforms and challenges and changes so it's a slightly sober thing to be talking about because it's a big challenge and one with, but it leads us to prayer. So let's pray that God will 
will lead us forward, that in our fog, he'd whisper and speak and show us the way forward, as he has in so many other things. Now then, thinking of this seeking the lost, just want to remind us that summer in Britain, short though it is, is a great time for making new friendships. I'm sure that many of you experience the fact that throughout the winter you barely see your neighbours. Um, in the summer, we start to be outside more, whether it's just washing the car and people wander by, or there's more time and space to connect with people. And in our city in particular, there's a huge turnover of people leaving the city. We're going to be praying for some people this morning, and people coming to the city. It is a time of year for making new friends. And I just want us to register that. If we're going to come out of this series on Luke responding to what Luke has to say to us. Let's make this summer one when we open our homes, open our lives, invite people in. Why not plan, even now, to invite some people to lunch? Why not, if you, for whatever Sundays you're here in August, make a plan for August Sunday lunch that other people could join in with and grab some people here? And if people here won't come, just, you know, go out to the country lanes, grab... You know, I mean, you know, the world's full of people. Let's make some new friends. Let's also, not only in the summer but going forward, let's take advantage of our new green travel plan. I don't know whether everyone's clocked the fact that in the last few months the council has agreed to a new green travel plan for the use of this building. For the last 15 years that we've been here, the plan has said to us that we need a whole bunch of us not to come by car at all, and that really we need to get out of our cars and not come by car. The plan has changed. They've accepted that we would love to share our cars, being a sharing kind of people, or to car share. That's the way we say it, isn't it? And so going forward, instead of the number of people who come by car being measured, the only thing that's going to be measured is the number of cars which some of, makes a bit more sense to many of us, which means you can cram as many people as you like in your car, which means that if there's someone that you know that might come here and join our fellowship, but for whom transport is an issue, you can stick them in your car and you can bring them. We can think about people who are in the church family who find it difficult to get here and we can offer to give them a lift and basically the more people we stuff in cars the better as long as um, we don't have too many cars over but you know car sharing is good and I love that change because it fits with what we value it fits with the fact that we want to include people we want to spend time with people we're even happy to be squished up against them in in a very full car and travel together because we care about people okay I'm going to move on to the last thing And then we're going to pray. The last thing I'm going to spend much less time speaking about than any of the rest of it. And then we're going to pray. So there's a grand sweep. Luke gives us this big picture. The Holy Spirit speaks to us as well. And God makes sense of our lives. God makes sense of our lives. And he also sets us an example of seeking the lost. And we have the privilege of being involved in that. There's another theme one of Jeremy's seven themes from last September, another one of this. It's very simply, 
the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gets big um, uh, sort of column space in Luke's gospel. John the Baptist is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, his mother, Zechariah, his father, Simeon, all there in the first couple of chapters, described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary, and the Holy Spirit came to Jesus in a fresh way at his baptism. Jesus was able to say, verses that I've already quoted this morning from Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus said, today this has been fulfilled. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. In chapter 10, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible where Jesus has seen a victory against demonic forces, and it says he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, living life in the Holy Spirit. And as most of us will know, Luke did not write just one book in the New Testament, but as well as his gospel, wrote the Acts of the Apostles, which is often described as truly being the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes on people on the day of Pentecost to, uh, to empower and to guide people. I was delighted. Um, if you were here last week for our, at our area celebration where Neil Townsend from Wantage spoke about this kind of stuff. He spoke about living life in the Spirit. He spoke from Ezekiel's prophecy about the river flowing out and as it went out getting stronger and deeper and bringing life wherever it went. That is the life that Luke's gospel also shows us. Life flourishes by the river. Cities should be built by the river. That's the place to build. And in that, this is the key verse, where Jesus, it's a wonderfully Trinitarian statement. Jesus the Son says this, which of you fathers... If your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, it's Jesus being incisive, though you're evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give what? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Here is the Son pointing us to the Father to ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit. And he's promising that because of God's goodness, that if we ask, he will send the Holy Spirit. It's very simple and straightforward. And that's what we're going to do now. I just need to think about how we're going to do this. There's been a few challenges in what I've said this morning, some things to pray for in an ongoing way, some things for us to choose to do differently over the summer. Um, So maybe we could just pause for a moment, and I'll give you two minutes just to think back over what I've been sharing, and just to ask God to cement anything in your uh, your own thinking that he wants to land 
from this. And then we're going to get on to the prophesying and the praying and the Holy Spirit stuff. Okay, let's just take a couple of moments to say, Holy Spirit, thank you that you're already here amongst us. And I pray that whatever is your word to your people from amongst all of this, this morning, I pray that you'd land it, whether it's convicting of sin or speaking encouragement, providing next steps, voice in the fog. Holy Spirit, come and help us now to be clear in our response to you, I pray. Okay. Um, Often, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, when God speaks to us through his word, through the scriptures, um, as soon as we get the word, sometimes it's like the path in the parable of the sower, that as soon as a word comes, the enemy comes and snatches it away before it can take root so often our experience of hearing god is that we have a moment of clarity in which we feel confident that god has said something to us and then immediately after that feel the fog come back again are um, once again taken up with doubt and that moment of clarity starts to sort of pass by into the distance and we want to say that I believe that as I prayed that God would speak to us, that where you had that moment of clarity, we need to trust God that he's spoken. And if it then started to get foggy again, don't, you know, we need to learn to doubt the doubts and to hang on to God active amongst us as we reach out to him and pray for his help.